Thank you for joining us today. The following is a message from North Place Church. Our hope is that it will inspire you, uplift you, and bring you closer to Christ. If you would like to visit the video of this message, visit our website at northplacechurch.com watch. Anytime I'm going to go on a long trip, I make sure that I grab a few new books to read along the way. And so I'll ask the staff here at North Place Church, even send a few emails to some of my pastor friends from around the country or professor friends to see what they are reading that is stirring their heart the most. And so the last few days of vacation were no different. I downloaded a couple of the recommended books to my Kindle app that I read on my iPad when I got on the plane and started scrolling through that library to find those two new books and decide which one of them I wanted to read first, I scrolled across a book that I had read over six years ago, haven't read it since, haven't really engaged it much since, but I felt a nudge in my heart to read that book again. It's a book that many of us read six years ago in a small group study, a book that focuses in detail on the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. Now you have to know how difficult it was for me to respond to that nudge because I don't reread books. I don't watch movies twice. I don't like reruns. I don't rewatch classic football games or basketball games or baseball games as much of a sports fan as I am. I don't redo those things. If I know what's going to happen, it seems like a waste of my time. Outside the Bible, I can count on one hand the books that I have read from cover to cover twice. The Bible is the only book that I can read and reread, and it keeps speaking to me and inspiring me because it is a living book. It is a supernatural book. It is God-breathed. It is God's Word. But with any other book outside the Bible, I read them once. Now, I take notes in the margin. I will take notes in the fly leaf, or if it's a digital book, I highlight them, and those notes are stored in a digital area of my library, and I will often go back to the books, and I will read the notes in the margin, or I will read the notes in the fly leaf, or I will read the digital notes of the book, but rarely do I ever read an entire book more than once from cover to cover. So I was a little disappointed when I felt the nudge to read this book again because I was excited to read the material in the two new books that I had downloaded. But I have served God long enough to know that nudge, to understand when God is speaking to me for a reason. So I opened the book on my iPad and started rereading, living on the edge, dare to experience true spirituality by Chip Ingram. Now again, this book is a detailed conversation about Romans chapter 12. And in my opinion, Romans chapter 12 is the most clear and concise description of what a mature Christian is supposed to look like that you're going to find anywhere in the scripture. If you can study Romans chapter 12 and allow the principles that are taught in those verses to become a part of your life, you will be on the road to discovering true spiritual maturity. For years, one of my life verses has been Romans 12, 12. Before I ever understood the riches of the entire chapter of Romans 12, I was enamored with the amount of wisdom that was contained in so few words in that little verse of Romans 12, 12. It says this, rejoice in hope, 
be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Those three commands by the Apostle Paul are simple and concise instruction on how to survive any situation you ever find yourself in, whether that situation is famine, persecution, injustice, or whether it's the complete flip side of that and it's prosperous and plentiful and enough, because I can promise you there are as many issues that come with prosperity and plenty as there is poverty and persecution. You learn to manage the both of them, and if you don't, either one of them will destroy you. And so regardless of what you find yourself in, The Apostle Paul gives these three admonishments, and it's the Christian life in a nutshell. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. One of my life verses. And if we have time today, I want to look at those three commands in verse 12 in more detail. But for now, I want us to zoom out and take a quick scan of the entire chapter, the whole chapter of Romans 12, because I really sense the Lord is leading us to take this chapter and study it corporately as a church family. And I feel strongly enough about it, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking into Romans chapter 12. So I want to encourage you in between weekend services to get your heart engaged in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. I would even challenge you to commit this chapter of the Bible to memory. Be as familiar with it as you possibly can. And I want to challenge you, if you want to go deeper, you want to read the book that I'm rereading. I'll put it up there again, Living on the Edge, Dare to Experience True Spirituality by Chip Ingram, so you can get that down. Now, the book was re-released in 2013. The content is the same, got a new cover and a new title. It's a newer edition, and it was released under the title True Spirituality, Becoming an R12 or a Romans 12 Christian by Chip Ingram. Same content. And regardless of which of those you decide to invest in, it will be an investment into your spiritual growth and a value added to the conversations that we're going to be having on the weekends. I'm not going to be following through the book, but a lot of what I say will be inspired from my study of the book some years ago. As I've engaged and re-engaged Romans 12 over the last couple weeks, I've been amazed at how the contents of Romans 12 seem more relevant to our lives today than they were just six years ago. The events that are unfolding in our world right now, the events that are unfolding in our nation right now, the events that have recently unfolded in our own region, our own city, in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, the political unrest, the racial tension, all that's going on right now in our lives is addressed profoundly in Romans chapter 12. And I believe it would do all Americans some good to immerse themselves in Romans 12 right now. This political year and the chaos that surrounds it and the racial tensions combined with the outlet of social media have brought out the worst in people who claim to follow Jesus. There is no doubt that the American church is sadly immature spiritually, and it seems like the American church has no desire to do anything about that. And for the ones that do want to grow spiritually, it seems that they are ignorant as to how to to grow and, and become mature spiritually. In my opinion, Romans chapter 12 is the cliff notes, the spark notes to the entire Bible. It is the executive summary to the most read book ever printed, the Word of God. And diving into an in-depth study of Romans 12 will change your life and spiritually mature us 
as an entire congregation. But to fully understand Romans chapter 12, you have to know what Paul said in the previous 11 chapters. And I don't have time today or in the next few weeks to engage all 11 chapters of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, but it is probably the most powerful teaching on grace that you're going to find anywhere in all of the Bible. Paul is writing to a group of people who have thought for years that the way that you truly are loved by God is to earn his love by keeping all of the rules. They thought that the only way into a relationship with God is through their religious performance. If their religious performance was good enough, God would accept them into relationship. If their religious performance wasn't good enough, then God would reject them from relationship. They thought they were in with God by being good enough by being the best rule keepers. And Paul spends the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans addressing that flawed theology and gives them a clear understanding of all that God's grace has done for them and for us for that matter. So when Romans 12 begins... He begins by reflecting on the conversation he's had in the last 11 chapters. So he's had this conversation about God's grace and all that God's done for us in the previous 11 chapters. And so chapter 12, 1 begins like this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. That's the New Living Translation, and I've highlighted for you the words, and so. Because those words give you an idea that Paul is talking now in Romans 12 on the foundation that he has laid in the first 11 chapters about God's grace doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so, in response to that, offer your whole body, your whole self, of all, because of all he's done for you. Now, these are the, this is the same verse in different translations. Here's the English Standard Version, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore... Therefore, I was always taught in studying the Bible, when you see a therefore in the Bible, find out what it's there for. And therefore always relates this current conversation to the one that's gone on ahead of time. I appeal to you, therefore, based on what I've just told you in the last 11 chapters about the grace of God, the mercies of God that have been extended to you, brothers, by that mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then the message paraphrase of Romans 12, 1 says this. So here's what I want you to do. In other words, I've had this conversation with you for the last 11 chapters. Based on what I just told you, here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Give him all of yourself because of he's given you all of himself. It's obvious that this is a continuing of a conversation. Now, I'm about to give you a very raw rudimentary, concise summation of Romans chapter 1 through 11, okay? I'm just grabbing highlights, and this is, in my opinion, just a quick summation of Romans chapter 11. This is what Paul said. Your performance will never be enough. Even on your best day, your most holy day, you still fall short of meeting God's standards. God's grace does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God sent Jesus to raise us to the standard. When we put our faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness. It is grace that gives us right standing with God. Not our ethnicity, not our social standing, not our own morality, religious performance, or ability to keep the rules. This understanding 
understanding of grace is not a license to continue in our sin, but a humble reminder of our indebtedness to God because to whom much is given, much is required. In light of that, Paul says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. And Paul continues in Romans 12 describing what the authentic Christian life looks like. He makes it clear that authentic Christianity is not legalism, a set of keeping obligatory rules, but it is more about intimacy in our relationships, especially our relationship with God. When our relationship with God is deep, when it's vibrant, when it's intimate, we want to offer our whole self to him. We want our lives to honor him. It's not dutifully depressing, obligatory list of religious rules. The motivation for wanting to think right and speak right and live right is that we do this as a reasonable act of worship to a God who has done so much for us. It is not religious duty. It is not obligation. Our righteous living is a response so that our lives honor a God that we are so indebted to. The entire chapter of Romans 12 measures spiritual maturity by how you manage relationships. And this is important. Romans 12 does not measure spiritual depth and spiritual maturity by how well people keep rules. Romans 12 measures spiritual maturity. Paul breaks relationships into five categories. And he basically gives us a litmus test to determine how spiritually mature we are based on how we manage five relationship areas of our life. So spiritual maturity is not based on rules. There are people that keep all of the rules that are spiritually immature. I know of people who are morally good but are conniving snakes and prejudice and everything else. They are all dot, they cross every dot religiously or dot every I, they cross every T, and yet they, they are conniving and manipulative and they are not emotionally and spiritually mature. Romans 12, Paul says, the litmus test of spiritual maturity is how you manage relationships. And he gives us five relationships that are to be managed as an authentic Christian. Here are the five key relationships of authentic Christianity. It begins with your relationship with God. It moves to your relationship with the world's values. In other words, how you interact and relate to culture. Number two, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with other believers, and your relationship with the sought. Okay, The sought are the word that we use at North Place Church to describe people who don't know Christ. There are people out there at the churches and other people who describe people who don't know Christ as sinners, pagans. They got all kinds of names for them. We believe that according to Scripture, God is pursuing a relationship with them. He is after them because of His love. He is seeking them, which makes them the sought. So when you see that word described, we're talking about people who don't know Christ. And that last relationship in the latter part of Romans 12 that Paul talks about is how we ought to interact and relate to people who are not following Jesus Christ. The way we respond in each of these five relationships determines your spiritual depth. It determines your level of spiritual maturity. And Romans 12 does not just give us the relationship categories. Paul gives us the correct response of authentic Christianity in each of these five areas. So there are five relationships and there are five appropriate responses in each of these areas of our life. This is what authentic Christianity looks like in relating to these five relational categories of our life. 
And I want us to look at them quickly. I don't have time today. We'll go deeper in the days ahead. This is simply a 30,000-foot view. The first relationship is our relationship with God. And the appropriate, authentic response from a mature believer to our relationship with God is surrender. That's the response God is looking for from us, according to Romans 12, in our relationship with him. Now, there are a lot of people who are saved who are not surrendered. They have professed their faith in Jesus Christ, but they're trying to do life their way, by their rules, making their choices. They're afraid to surrender everything to God completely because they are afraid they've trusted him to be their savior, but they've not trusted him to be their Lord because they're afraid of what he might ask of them. The only way to walk in maturity as a follower of Christ is to move from simply being saved to being surrendered. And the problem with the American church is we have so many saved people and not enough surrendered people, and we need to grow up and come to the place of complete, total surrender to the cause of Christ, where we offer our whole selves to him in light of the unmerited mercy and favor and grace that he's given to us. And the verse that substantiates this relationship and this response is Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your true and proper worship. The second relationship is your relationship with the world's values, the way you relate to culture. And the mature, appropriate response in managing that relationship is to be separate. Separate from the world's ways, separate from the world's behaviors, separate from the world's customs. If you're following Jesus Christ and you're a mature believer, there is going to be a definitive line of demarcation in your choices and everybody else in the culture. There's going to be a definitive difference in the way you live your life, your behavior, your activity, your choices, your words, your thoughts. Everything about you is going to be redeemed and changed because you are of another kingdom. The mature believer is separate from the behavior and customs of this world. Romans 12, 2 underpins that relationship and that response by saying, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. The third relationship is this relationship with yourself. And the mature Christian response in relation to yourself is to be serious in self assessment. Don't think of yourself more highly than you are. Don't think of yourself more spiritually deep than you are. Be very honest. If there's no prayer life there, don't think of yourself as a mature Christian. If there's not a, a, an emotional um, integrity there, if there's not a, a, a consistency in your life, you may be saved, but don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. That is basically Paul is saying, if you're going to be mature, if you're going to grow to spiritual maturity, your relationship with God, the appropriate relationship with the culture, and the appropriate relationship with yourself is to be serious and honest in your own spiritual assessment of your life. And the underpinning verses of that relationship and that response are Romans chapter 12, verse 3 through 8. There's a block of verses there. Basically, verse 3 summarizes this. Paul writes, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. And the fourth relationship Paul talks about is our relationship with other believers. And the mature Christian response in the way we relate to other Christ followers is to serve them. To serve the members of the family 
of faith. It's not about me. It's not about what I can get. Church is not about what's in it for me. Church, the small group, relationship with other believers is how I flesh out my spiritual maturity by serving the needs of other people. And Paul writes in Romans 12, 9 through 13, that passage undergirds this relationship and this response. And this is what he writes. These are phrases from that passage. Love must be sincere. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. There are so many ways that you can serve the Lord's people. The children's ministry team serving this morning are serving you in love today by engaging your children in discipleship while you experience the Word of God. The youth ministry leaders that are serving your students today, giving up of their family time as adults to engage in the spiritual growth of our teenagers, are serving this body in love. Those of you that agree to host, open your home, or open an environment so that people can grow spiritually, you will serve this body in love. There are so many ways to serve a congregation, to serve individual believers, but the mature response in your relationship to other believers is to serve them. The fifth relationship is the relationship with the sought and the appropriate mature Christian response to dealing with people who don't know Jesus Christ is supernaturally responding to evil with good. In Romans 12 verse 14 through 21 sums that up, that relationship and that response. And here are some phrases from those seven or eight verses. This is what Paul says. Bless those who persecute you. The appropriate response when engaging people who don't know Jesus is to respond supernaturally to evil with good. He said, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil with good. This is a quick 30,000 foot overview of what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 12. We're going to zoom in more in the next couple of weeks. But Romans chapter 12 basically says that an authentic, mature Christian is someone who is surrendered to God, separate from the world's values, serious in their own self-assessment, serving other believers in love, and supernaturally responding to evil with good. And I promised if I had time today, I would go back to those three profound statements in verse 12, this life verse. And I want to conclude today in the last few moments that I have by, by showing you why this verse is so important to me. I really believe Romans 12, 12 is the epicenter of the entire chapter. And in the next few weeks, I'm not going to have time to focus just on verse 12. I really believe this is a word for somebody gathered here today. If there was ever a one-verse summation of the Christian life, Romans 12, 12 is it. There is wisdom and concise commands here. And and I want to start with the middle command. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient or endure tribulation, and be constant in prayer. But before we talk about rejoicing in hope and being constant in prayer, I want to talk about what it means to be patient or enduring in tribulation. Because tribulation is unique on this list. Rejoicing and hope, rejoicing is joy and hope, patience and endurance. All of those things are virtues. They're moral attributes. They're grace gifts. 
When God does a work in our heart, he gives us grace. And the fruit of the Spirit, joy and love and long-suffering, endurance, those things, patience, those are fruits of the Spirit that happen, the fruit of the Spirit at work in our lives. But tribulation isn't. Tribulation isn't a virtue. Tribulation isn't a moral attribute. Tribulation is something that happens to us, something that is done to us. It happens. It doesn't come from out of us. It happens to us. I start with the environment of affliction and tribulation because it is the atmosphere of affliction that all of the other virtues grow and are developed. Joy matures in affliction. Faith matures in affliction. Your love matures in affliction. It is in the midst of tribulation that endurance and patience grows. It is the atmosphere of affliction that causes all of those other virtues to mature. Some tribulation that you and I share and experience is a human experience. People that don't even follow Jesus experience those same tribulations like sickness and death and calamity. But there is some tribulation that is unique to us as followers of Christ, being persecuted for Christ's sake. And we don't know a lot about that in this country, but it's becoming more and more prevalent as we take stands, believing the Bible against some changes that are happening in our culture. There are people being passed over for jobs, missing promotions, all those kinds of things, uh, situations happening at school. All those things are happening. Our brothers and sisters around the world know what real persecution is for the cause of Christ. But regardless of the cause of that tribulation or persecution, it is normal. It is to be expected as a part of this world. It's the atmosphere that we live in. And affliction is the atmosphere where joy and hope and patience and prayer grow up. Affliction is where we live. Affliction is the air we breathe. If you don't live there now, you will soon because it is a normal part of living this life. And the sooner you realize that, the more help it's going to be when you come into a season of affliction in your life. Jesus is the best man who ever lived. And none of us has any right to experience any less affliction than he did. If we experience less, it is only an act of mercy. For Jesus, it was affliction from the beginning. His birth was scandalous. He was conceived to a woman who wasn't married. She was engaged to her earthly husband, Joseph. But Jesus was supernaturally conceived in her before she was married, created problems for Mary and Joseph. His birth was scandalous and created affliction. He was placed as a baby in a feed trough. He was threatened and hated by the political powers of his day as a baby, and then on through his adult life, and he escaped as a child, had to flee as a refugee to Egypt. His entire life was similar to that until he was finally accused of blasphemy and eventually crucified. His life was marked by tribulation and affliction. That's why Christianity began this way. Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, Luke 14, 27. He said in Matthew 10, 25, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Beelzebub is a demonic term, uh, and he's basically saying, if they think I'm demonic, if they associate me with the devil, what do you think they're going to say about you when I'm gone? Paul taught all the young churches that he planted and established, Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And the apostle Peter taught the same thing to the churches he had influence over. He wrote, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening 
to you, 1 Peter 4 and 12. Affliction isn't strange. Tribulation is normal. It comes with living in a fallen, sinful, futile world. The affliction of our lives extends from cancer to calamity to conflict to death. They are a normal part of being human. They are a normal part of the battles that we fight on our way to heaven. That's why Paul said, in the center of this, be patient in tribulation. But the first part of that verse says this, Rejoice in hope. And the word in is underlined because I want you to see that joy is found in hope. In hope. It's as if hope is the soil or the ground that grows the fruit of joy. It means that Christians can go through some really bad things right now, but the atmosphere of our affliction doesn't rob us of our joy because our joy is anchored in an otherworldly hope. We have both the comforting presence of Christ in the here and now that he walks with us even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That is our hope. But we have an eternal hope of a kingdom that we will live in where all affliction and death and dying and decaying will be swallowed up. That's why Christians can rejoice in the middle of tribulation even when they're not healthy and even when life isn't secure because tribulation and affliction drives the roots of our joy deeper into our eternal hope. And that tribulation gets our eyes off of a world that is only temporary and it puts our eyes on a kingdom that is going to last forever and the future hope that we have in that eternal kingdom is what brings hope back into the present to lighten the load of the tribulation on our shoulders at the moment. So Paul writes in the last part of Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. Now the word constant doesn't mean that you're praying every minute of every day. It means to persist. It means to persevere in prayer. It means to stay at prayer. Be devoted to prayer. Don't give up or slack off in your prayer life. It means to be habitual. It is the opposite of random, occasional, sporadic, intermittent. Paul is calling Christians to make prayer a regular, habitual, reoccurring, disciplined part of your life. Treat prayer the same way as you do eating and sleeping and doing your job. Don't be hit and miss about it. Don't assume that prayer is just supposed to fill in the cracks of the other areas of your life. Prayer is not a bailout plan for the mature child of God. Dealing with God in prayer deserves more than a dial-up on the fly. He is, of course, available anytime, and he loves to rescue us when we call to him, but he's dishonored when we don't make time in our day to give him focused attention. All relationships require focused attention. Your marriage will suffer without it, your parental responsibilities will suffer without it, and your relationship with God will suffer without focused attention. And Paul is calling us to live a life of regular planned meetings in God, where our prayer life looks like this. We praise him for who he is, we thank him for what he's done, we ask him for help, we plead the cause of the ones we love, even the ones who we don't even know their names, people in Durban that we're going to reach and orphan children around the world or the exploited and neglected children in our own neighboring counties. We don't know all of their names, but we love them because God has placed them on our heart and praying for them should be a part of our regular prayer time. We praise him for who he is, thank him for what he's done. We ask him for help. We plead the cause of the ones we love, even those we don't know by name. So how does 
being constant in prayer connect to rejoicing in hope and being patient in tribulation? How does that all work? I said it at the beginning today in worship. Prayer is the womb that awakens and sustains hope. Prayer gives birth to hope. And hope is the soil that produces the fruit of joy. And joy is necessary to endure tribulation patiently. So it makes a constant prayer life the bedrock of living and overcoming mature Christian life. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And I pray as we engage the entirety of Romans 12 over the next couple weeks that each of us grow and mature spiritually and we as a church grow in these five relationship areas that we would all look more surrender to God, separate from the world's values, serious in self-assessment, serving other believers in love and supernaturally responding to the evil of our world with good. Listen, friend, we've got too many churches right now in what's going on in our culture that are thermometers. God has not called you or me to be a thermometer right now. He has called us to be a thermostat. There's a difference. A thermostat dictates the environment. A thermometer responds to the environment. And there are too many believers right now that are letting the environment determine their attitude they're letting the environment determine their words they're letting i mean the worst is coming out in the body of christ right now politically and racially and every other way because of the outlet of social media but let me just tell you god has not called the mature believer to be a thermometer responding to the environment in the room it simply reads whatever temperature is in the room a thermostat sets the temperature in the room And that's what God is calling us to be. Steady, patient, full of joy, anchored in hope, patient in the face of tribulation, and constant in our prayer. I want us to do something this weekend in closing that is not something we do regularly at North Place. We have done it. For those of you that grew up in liturgical environments, this is a more common practice. It's done every Sunday. It's a responsive reading of a scripture passage when there is a passage that we want to get embedded into the heart of a congregation. In liturgical churches, it's done as a part of the liturgy every week. If you grew up Methodist, maybe it happened, or uh, Lutheran or Episcopalian or Catholic, you may have done this more regularly. But I really believe God is so wanting to get the truths of Romans 12 embedded in the heart of this body that I want to borrow an experience from brothers and sisters from other stripes of faith who do this on a regular basis. We've done it through the years here on occasion. And I, I want to just have a moment of responsive reading. And the way it works, for those of you that grew up doing this, you'll have to help those that didn't. I read a passage of Scripture. It'll be on your screens. And there's a highlighted portion of that passage that I stop and you read the underlined portion in unity as a congregation. And together, I read a part, you read a part out loud, and we walk our way through Romans chapter 12. I really believe this would be an appropriate way to conclude today and launch into the next couple weeks. So I want you to stand with me, if you would, all over this place. We're going to help you by having it on your screens. My prayer is that 
something supernatural happens as we begin reading this is that there's a hunger in your heart to live out the principles mentioned here. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these bodies do not all have the same function, and each member belongs to all others, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, if it is serving, if it is teaching, if it is encouraging, if it is contributing to the needs of others, if it is leadership, if it is showing mercy, love must be sincere. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Share with God's people who are in need. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay it, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Father, today I pray that you will take notice of our heart to grow and that you will help us become authentic, mature followers of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the prayer team if they would to come and make themselves available today. I want to pray the blessing over you. And I realize the response to this message is more about when you leave than right now, but I also know there are several in this room who are in tribulation, in affliction, and you need prayer today. And one of the ways we serve each other in love is to come together and join our faith with yours and pray that God would give you grace in the valley of your affliction. Whether it's a financial battle, a relational battle, a physical battle, we would love to serve you today. 
act out what Romans 12 says by agreeing in faith that God would address the mountain, the battle that you fight. The altars will be open today for us to join with you in prayer. We would love to pray with you in the, the middle of your need. Father, I pray today you'll bless them and keep them, that you'll make your face shine down upon them, that you'll be gracious to them, that you will turn your countenance their direction, Lord, and that you will grant them peace. May your word live in us today, and may we live it out when we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at North Place and on Facebook at facebook.com slash North Place Church. To watch the video of this message, go to northplacechurch.com slash watch.